This episode of Roadie Radio is brought to you by your local library's Library of Things. Did you know that your library has more than just books and movies? Libraries across Rhode Island lend out all sorts of unconventional items. You can borrow fishing gear, ukuleles, tools, games and puzzles, telescopes, and more. Whether you want to try a new hobby or keep the kids occupied, Ocean State Libraries have what you need. Contact your local library to find out what's in their library of things. You're listening to Roadie Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. Hello, I'm Zach Berger, Adult Services Librarian at Cranston Public Library. For today's episode of Roadie Radio, I'm very pleased to bring you this presentation by Michael Fine, MD, who joined the library on January 11, 2022, to read from his newest book, Rhode Island Stories, which, I'm pleased to say, provides marvelous insight into some very unique personalities and situations in our home state. Dr. Fine served in the cabinet of Governor Lincoln Chafee as director of the Rhode Island Department of Health from February of 2011 until March of 2015, and before that, he was the medical program director at the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. He was a founder and managing director of Health Access RI, the nation's first statewide organization making prepaid, reduced, fee-for-service primary care available to people without employer-provided health insurance. Currently, Dr. Fine is the Chief Health Strategist for the City of Central Falls, Rhode Island. Throughout his career, Dr. Fine has been an advocate for communities, healthcare reform, and the care of underserved populations worldwide for 40 years. His experiences across the globe have enabled him to craft numerous short stories, novels, and healthcare policy books about how we can change the world by empowering, caring for, and educating one another. Thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, and thanks to the library um, for hosting this and for continuing to exist as a library. You know, I, I try to get to every Rhode Island library once a year because I think libraries are the real cornerstone of democracy. We really need them and they do something that is unlike uh, anything else that happens in the United States. You know, they provide a public service around information, uh, knowledge, and even wisdom, and uh, make it open and available to everybody, which is spectacular. If only we had a healthcare system that worked the same way, um, and a couple of other things as well. But um, I'm grateful for the libraries that we have and for the Cranston Library in particular. Uh, I've got to confess that I'm not doing much medicine or healthcare anymore. Um, I'm mostly writing fiction. And I'm writing fiction intentionally, not just because I'm kind of lazy. Hopefully I'm not that lazy, but I'm writing fiction because I think it's the only way uh, to address problems that I think we all confront and confront together and which have no other clear or obvious way to address. I started thinking about this actually after uh, 9-11. You may remember that right after 9-11, we had about three weeks where we really were paying attention to each other. We were really thinking about each other, taking care of each other. And it felt suddenly like we were one people again. 
And in that period, when it felt like we were one people again, I suddenly realized that we weren't feeling very much like one people anymore. And that began to worry me um, because I began to think that if we didn't behave like one people, and if we didn't think of ourselves as one people, that put us on the pathway to conflict, uh, to questions about democracy, um, and perhaps even to civil war. Now, I remembered when I was growing up, I think many of us think the time of our growing up is a lucky time. Um, I was lucky in my own way, as many of us were. I grew up at a time when we did feel like one people, more or less, though some people were way more advantaged than others in that time. And, you know, it's hard to look back and see that and admit to it, but it was true. Um, even so, I think even those of us who had to struggle thought of this nation as the nation of expanding justice, commitment to democracy, and of perhaps irrational hope. Um, that we, If there was one thing that marked us as a people, it was this endless irrational hope um, that the future could be better than the past. Uh, this, the notion of us being one people was actually quite real. Um, I don't know if you, if anybody's seen the new movie about uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz um, and their relationship, but uh, in the movie, there is somebody who plays a writer, one of the writers on the show, who says what is to me an extraordinary thing, which is that uh, now, you know, with our zillions of different channels and ways of looking at television and you know, different internet access options through YouTube and so forth. If there is ever a movie or a, a television show that garners 10 million views, it's a huge deal. In a nation of 330 million people, it becomes the biggest event of its kind. You know, that's apparently, apparently the Academy Awards now get about 8 million. And this writer said, um, during the time when I Love Lucy was on television, every, I think it was Thursday night at 7.30 or 8 or 8.30, I don't remember exactly the time, um, there would be 60 million Americans um, watching it all at the same time in the same place, watching the same thing and having a shared experience. Um, there were probably a similar number who watched Ed Sullivan on Sunday nights, I think it's seven o'clock, but it might have been eight. And we had these shared experiences. You know, the the nation probably knit together as one people to a large extent during the Second World War, um, when men mostly from many different walks of life served together um, in Europe or in in uh, in Japan or near Japan, and there would be men from so you know somebody who was. A Cherokee from North Carolina, somebody who was Italian from uh, San Francisco, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn, you know, uh, an African-American guy uh, from South Carolina, all serving together uh, in one uh, in one unit. Though I'm not sure that uh, black Americans were actually that integrated into the service yet, um, but everyone else served together. And that gave everyone a sense of common experience. You know, we created these bands of brothers, of, of, of guys who thought of each other as the people who they uh, was good, who, who had their back and whose back they had, you know, who were going to live and die together and took care of each other. And it broke down any 
assumptions or biases they had about who those guys were. You know, they were the folks in their unit and they were the most important to them. Um, so we did have this amazing period of, of being one people. And at the same time, we had a number of writers um, who were all alive at the same time, um, who functioned as the moral compass um, to some degree and certainly uh, moral conscience of the nation. So William Faulkner, Ernest Hemingway, John Dos Passos, uh, John Steinbeck, uh, James Baldwin, uh, and Allen Ginsberg were all alive at the same time. And they, you know, their business in many ways was to represent the nation in its, in its moral conscience, to be that conscience, to be that consciousness of who we were as a people, um, and to be that consciousness of, you know, what I call irrational hope. Um, and they were referencing the writers of Europe of a previous generation. Some were American, but many European, you know, Charles Dickens, Victor Hugo, uh, Leo Tolstoy, Charles Chestnut, a uh, relatively unknown but great American short story writer uh, who some have called the American Chekhov, uh, Chekhov himself, Balzac, Dostoevsky, de Maupassant, and a number of others um, who had the same sort of role of bringing together the people of Europe with a a moral imagination and helping uh, those folks be one people. Now, flash forward to today, um, we have a different moment. Um, in order for democracy to work, I think, you need three conditions. One is agency, the notion that uh, what I do matters. The second is equality, the notion that we are all on a pretty equal footing um, when we come to petition the government, government or try to sort out how to solve society's challenges. Um, and, and the third necessary condition is imagination. I think we have to be able to imagine the inner lives of other people and understand that those other people, though different or have different, who may have different ideas, are morally equal and exist on the same footing that we exist so we can negotiate our uh, decisions together. Um, that's what we need, but now we are experiencing some threats to those ideas. First, I think we're beginning to see democracy itself devalued by some, you know, thinking that the opinions of one group or another are somehow more important or more valuable than anybody else. Um, we've been segmented by marketing and, um, in a very different, difficult way. So, you know, we used to exist in communities of people who are interdependent who took care of each other and took care of the land on which they lived. Um, now we've been broken down into groups based on what someone wants to sell us. Um, and we have begun to believe that online communities are the same thing as real communities. People with shared interests who uh, may have shared interests but are different from other people um, see themselves somehow alike, even though they may, may live in totally different places and have no relationship to one another. And that has kind of replaced the time and energy people put into being together as a community um, and uh, doing things together and taking care of each other. Um, we've seen an enormous concentration of wealth um, and that really undermines the capacity of each person uh, to exercise their agency equally. It means that some people get listened to uh, more intensely than other people, 
because of the way they can represent themselves in a legislature or um, in front of an executive branch. And part of that is we have seen a growing income inequality um, with others uh, really struggling to survive. And finally, we've been sorted. Um, what um, my friend Bill Bishop calls the big sort, so that we tend to live now with people who are like us in some way or another. And we often don't live with, experience, or know uh, people from different backgrounds, different cultures, with different experiences or different ideas. Um, and those threats, I think, are real, and they make the existence of a common life uh, a little harder to, to get at. So what's the solution? Well, there are probably a zillion, um, but the solution that I know and think about um, is the way the imagination itself can and should be used to build a common life. Um, so I, I've started writing these crazy short stories and novels, um, which aim to tell the stories of many different people from many different places and many different backgrounds um, to make sure that all of us understand uh, that uh, that the other people in our in our culture have an inner life and understand the richness and complexity of that inner life so that when we come to the table um, and interact with others, we do it um, as interacting with equals, um, with agency, um, so that we can make democracy stronger. And in many ways, it is fiction, poetry, uh, music, art, uh, theater and the other arts that seem to me to have the most potential to tap into the imagination and give us the ability to see ourselves as one people again. And the ability to see ourselves as one people um, is likely to be our greatest strength. We have in the last two years experienced uh, this terrible pandemic, um, which uh, many of us think we've experienced as terrible because of our divisions. You know, in, in the United States, our public health process has performed the most poorly, among the most poorly in the world. Um, we have the highest number of deaths in the world. Um, we have a very high uh, percentage of cases, particularly now, but way too many deaths um, and way too much division. We've been like people in a bad divorce, fighting over every tiny little thing, over masks, over uh, uh, vaccinations, uh, over social distancing, over schools opening or closing, over uh, bars and restaurants opening or closing, over everything we can possibly think about, we have fought about. And that's been frustrating, but it's been more than frustrating. It has been dangerous so that we have lost over 800,000 Americans, um, probably 20 times the number of people who uh, would have died if we had done what other countries did and uh, approach this as one people. And that to me means we have to work much, much harder on the piece about being one people and the opportunity is to do that through libraries, um, through fiction, through novels and short stories and listening to other people's stories. Um, so we understand the value and importance um, of each of those other people uh, and we make democracy stronger in that process. This is from uh, Rhode Island Stories. 
Um, and it's a story called The Prisoner of Ideas. No man or woman can be trusted, thought Sonia Kano, but this one is certainly something of a distraction. I fall into the same rabbit hole every time. They pique my interest one day. The next thing I know, it's two years later, and I hear their voice coming out of my mouth. Their thoughts are in my brain, and suddenly I realize that what I'm saying and thinking has nothing to do with what I actually think or what I actually feel, and then I bolt. There was nothing special about the house on Congress Street, and Sonia didn't give a damn about gentrification. It was a triple-decker like every other house in Central Falls. Sonia bought it because it was cheap and because the numbers worked. You get two tenants. They pay the rent. The rent covers the mortgage and you live for free or better than free, to be honest, because you can charge all sorts of expenses to the house and make that income invisible to the tax man, even though it comes in as cash every month. Why would a woman not buy a house? But to Baba Tudne, Sonia's house represented everything that was right and wrong with America, everything that was right and wrong with democracy, and everything that was right and wrong with Sonia herself. Although before Babatudne came into her life, Sonia had never seriously considered that there was anything wrong with her at all. Sonia thought she was done with relationships, just done, once and for all. And so she went back to college to finish her degree. She had three excellent children, each more interesting than the next who were finally now old enough that they didn't need their mother's attention every second. She had her sisters and brothers, whose difficulties provided plenty of distraction in her life. The office ran like clockwork. There were plenty of people answering the phones, and Sonia had a list of per diems, mostly college kids and Uber drivers. She'd ring up at the last moment if one of her regulars called in sick. The last two men had given her children and were steady enough to do their share when she needed someone to drive a child to school or to pick up from soccer. But they had both fallen off the wagon one way, the, one way or the other, one to another woman, one to beer and other women. But she had learned something from being with each one of them and had no regrets. Her relationship with Sophia had become so complicated that it was too much to think any more about it. So now is my time. Sonia thought, I'll finish college one course at a time. Then I'll go to law school at night. The lawyers in my office don't have any better sense than I do. They just got to this country first, and they make a whole lot more money than I do for doing a whole lot less work than I do. But then there was Babatudne, who Sonia hadn't counted on meeting. Poor, beautiful Babatudne, the adjunct professor and poet, the man who would be a student for the rest of his life was pretty, brilliant, full of soul, and would never earn a living. What did she see in him? They are building a new train station in Pawtucket, Babatudne said. Gentrification. The rich will be coming from Boston by train. They will buy up all the property. Property values will go through the roof. Taxes will go up. You and your kids, you won't be able to live in Central Falls anymore. Central Falls will be for millennials. They will destroy our communities. Where will our people go? How will our people live? There was something about Babatudne's blue-brown dark skin and beautiful brown eyes that Sonia could not stop thinking about. It made no sense, but oh, how that man had soul. The first time they met for coffee, it was to discuss her paper on Chaucer. Babatudne was earnest and polite, 
He focused on her usage and on her construction, not on her ideas. Outline, he said. Think out what you want to say first, then say it. Short, direct sentences with active verbs and no adverbs. Don't copy someone else's style. You don't need to sound important. Just say what you think and be yourself. I don't write well in English, Sonia said. I think in English, but with Spanish style. Maybe a little flowery, maybe a little overblown, like a woman who wears too much makeup. You are hiding, buried under words and sentences, Babatudne said. English thinking is cool, not hot, Sonia said. And Babatudne raised his eyes to meet hers for the first time. Chaucer is quite hot, Babatudne said, but I understand what you mean. Yoruba thinking is also different, complex, textured, elegant, full of hidden meanings, and English thinking has none of that richness. I'm sorry this course is so Eurocentric. You might prefer the Latin and Central Americans, Garcia Marquez, Clarice Lispector, Octavio Paz, Isabel Allende, Roberto Bolleno, Laura Esquivel, Neruda, and even Vargas Losa, that capitalist, and Garcia Lorca. Yes, Garcia Lorca. Read them in Spanish, I think, except Lispector, who you'll have to read in, in translation from the Portuguese, and it's very difficult, but worth the effort. But read the women first. I don't have time to read, Sonia said, because of my children, my house, and my work. I pray I can get through the reading and the papers for this course, but my writing and thinking, I have no time for this. It takes so much time. That is why I, as a teacher, have office hours, Babatudne said, to teach, to make it simpler for you to write. Can I send you my papers in draft form, Sonia said. Better yet, send outlines first, Babatudne said, and we will meet once a week. Once a week soon became much more than that. But then an unaffected, an unexpected difficulty came between them. Babatudne came to the house to have dinner one night with Sonia and her children. Sonia went all out. Arepas, chicken, beef, chicharron, machilla, costilla, tostones, fried yucca with cheese. Not that she was cooking to impress, of course. She only wanted to show Babatudne she was good at something that her clumsy sentence construction and poor word choice didn't represent the full range of her knowledge and abilities. Babatune didn't eat much, but Sonia's kids loved him anyway. He had a poet's appreciation for childhood, and he became a child again as soon as they sat down together. To dinner, I'm sorry. He popped his cheek in and out when Sonia poured the wine. He made fun of Sonia by speaking first in Pig Latin and then in Middle English. He went from saying, East play, ass play, ethe, I'll say, to wander the with the shoulder suit there, the drachtet match, it pierced to the root there. And he made Sonia translate for them and then say the next four lines of the prologue and then made, made Yolanda say the next two lines and Hector say the next two lines. And he even got little Jasmine, who was only eight, to say a line. Before long, Sonia's kids were listening to the whole prologue to the Canterbury Tales, and they loved every word and every note, what sounded like music. And Sonia could feel those kids falling in love with Babatudne, with Babatudne's soul the way she had. They had fathers who were good men, but Babatudne was just on a different plane of being. Sonia felt somehow thrilled to be alive. Later, when they were together, when Sonia teased Babatudne about not eating much, it came out that Pabatudne was a vegetarian and couldn't eat much of what she made and served. He had an elegant way of telling her that. He didn't say anything about what he would or wouldn't eat, 
He just talked about how much he liked the Aripa and the Yucca and about how much he liked reciting Chaucer to her children and how much he liked watching them eat the rice and beans. She understood. Next time there will be more vegetables, she said. I make mean maduros, she said, and a fantastic lentil soup. So Sonia couldn't believe it when Baba Tune told her he wouldn't ever come back to her house again. My children loved you, she said. It was a Friday and they were in his office at Rick in the tiny little cubicle they gave adjuncts, which was jammed with books and papers. A desk, a desk lamp, shelves and two chairs, one on each side of the desk. I loved your children. They have life and energy and a mother with heart and imagination, Babatudne said, but your house is in the danger zone for gentrification and I can't go back there. When I was with you, I could hear the cries of the people who will be dispossessed, the people who have come to Central Falls from all over the globe, from Honduras and El Salvador and the Dominican Republic, from Cape Verde and Liberia and Nigeria and Mali, after tremendous suffering and who are about to be forced to flee again, just after they've reconstituted their lives. It is too much pain to bear. The train station isn't built yet, Sonia said. They haven't even broken ground. That's not the point, Babatune said. The capitalists and the materialists are rising out of the bowels of the earth, coming up from the lower depths, swarming and getting ready to pounce. First, they buy up the old brick mill buildings on Clay, Pine, and Barton Streets. Then they buy up the trickled deckers and make them over into housing for Brown and RISD students. Our people who already have to take two buses to go to work will now have to take three buses. They'll have to move to Johnston, West Warwick, and Danielson, where they are not wanted, where there are no others like them, where no one else wants to live. We must rise up. The time to stop the process is now. The souls of displaced children are already calling out. Please tell me exactly how your not coming to my house is rising up, Sonia said. Do you expect me to sell my house and displace my children today for something that may or may not happen in five years? You are saying something else. You are saying my children and I are not good enough for you. I may write English. I may not write English well, but I understand what you are saying loud and clear. Then Baba Tudne got on his knees in front of Sonia, his hands locked together, and he bowed his head in prayer. The door to the cubicle was open. Someone might see. I am saying that we will take this on together. I pray for your forgiveness. To me, ideas have souls. Some are the congealed pain of our history, the history of the oppressed, and some days I feel that pain in the very center of my being. But you, you are my liberation. In you, I see the beauty of all our people, the story of people who were cast down, but find in themselves the strength to rise up, the seeds that germinate in cool darkness and push their way up through dirt and decay into the light. What can a woman say to a man like that? Baba Tudne's words made her skin tingle. Sonia leaned over and kissed Baba Tudne on the forehead. She took his clasped hands in hers, lifted him from his knees, and stood up herself. Then she closed the door. After that, every Friday night, when she didn't have to work in the morning, her sister Claudette, who had two little kids of her own, came to stay with Sonia's kids so Sonia could be with Baba Tudne, his place in North Providence. He lived over a butcher shop next to a lemonade stand, 
in a place that was in the middle of nowhere, a place that would never be gentrified because no one in their right mind would ever want to live there. Still, that place was fine for one night a week. And Babatunde somehow made Sonia's soul glad and let her body be at peace. She took the summer off. There wasn't any rush. The plan had always been to take one course at a time. Her kids needed her attention in the summer. It was going to take her six or seven years to finish her degree anyway. Some days work just didn't matter that much. It was better to load the kids in the car in the late afternoon and drive to the beach to Horseneck or to East Matunic, where you could slip through the after where you could slip through after the traffic had come and gone and then park for free. It was the same beach after six that it was in the morning when traffic filled Route 4 and the $15 a car parking lots uh, were jammed with cars. The same lime green seagrass moving in waves with the wind, the same tawny white sand still warm on your feet from the day's sun, but not too hot to walk on, the same glorious ocean, which was still ready to snatch you away from yourself, lift you, twirl you around mercilessly, and throw your throw you wherever without restraint. Sonia registered for the fall semester in August. Disappointing as it was, she just didn't need another English course for pre-law. Best to find a course that met twice a week and late in the afternoon, but one that wasn't too dry and where she might learn something she actually needed to know. Political Science 201, the development of American democracy. Political Science 202, American government. Philosophy 205, introduction to logic. Economics 200, introduction to economics. History 201, U.S. history to 1877. Too many choices. Babatune said he'd help with her writing whatever she chose. And then he forgave her for her choice. Economics, 200. But he brought her a new book to read every time they were together and talked about the papers he was grading for English 207, American Literature Beginnings to the Present. He hated teaching Dreiser and Steinbeck, but he loved Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Richard Wright, William Carlos Williams, Amiri Baccarat, Allen Ginsberg, and Mark Espada. Hope, Babatune said, America is hope, however irrational, and the inappropriate expectation of justice in a world where no justice has ever existed. Sonia found herself waking at 3 a.m. and reading the books Babatune brought at first. But I don't have time for this, Sonia thought. I need to be on alert on my game all day long. Still, there was something about the summer's heat that was disquieting that woke her and forced her awake, forced her awake to read, something she couldn't quite put her finger on, something that kept eating at her. Even so, Sonia's brain stayed in gear all day long, and even when, in a late afternoon meeting, meeting, she felt her eyelids get heavy. I can do this, Sonia told herself. I must resist. And she stand and command more attention by standing, even as she brought herself back from the brink. One Monday, at the end of the summer, when the lights were still hot, and the drone of air conditioners drowned out the rumble and groan of the trucks on Route 95, Sonia awoke again in the middle of the night and dressed. There was no light in the sky. She checked on the children who were still sleeping. 17 minutes there, she thought, 17 minutes back. I can be back in my house and back in my bed before 6.30, but I must know. She drove to North Providence. There is an unusual peace in the city before dawn in the summer. Nothing moves. Everyone is sleeping. 
Everything is blue, gray, and brown, as if standing in a fog. No one looks, no one sees, and no one knows. There is enough light to see what you need to see. You can learn what you need to learn before anyone knows you've been there and gone. Babatudne's beat-up old blue Saturn was parked at the curb, sandwiched between other old cars. Fords and old Toyotas, Kias, and step vans, the tired cars of the poor, cars that spend every night on the street. The kitchen, the light in Babatudne's kitchen was on. What have I learned, Sonia wondered. Only that his car is here and his kitchen light is on. Nothing else. She parked in front of a fire hydrant across the street and sat for a few minutes. Then she drove home. It was raining the next night when Sonia awoke, a wind-driven rain without thunder or lightning that spattered and clicked on the glass window panes. The children were sleeping. Sonia dressed and hurried out. She eased the front door closed so the door nestled and did not slam and so the lock closed instead of clicked loudly. She guided the screen door back onto its frame so it didn't bang. Then she drove to North Providence in the rain. She couldn't see much, of course. The windblown rain brought darkness, made her headlights murky, and made the tree branches hanging over the road into angry spirits that wanted to smother Sonia, her car, and the road itself. Sonia didn't see Babatune's car at first. Dread sadness, despair, and anger. The emotions that had been waking her grabbed her throat, eyes, kidneys, and the pit of her stomach. But then as she drove past the house to find a place to turn, she saw the blue Saturn parked half a block away from the butcher shop. When she turned and parked in front of the fire hydrant again, she saw that the light was on in Babatudne's kitchen, partially obscured by the branches and leaves of a big maple that were swaying with the wind and the rain. Sonia awoke Wednesday night, but she stayed home. She paced inside her bedroom for an hour until her feet got cold, so she made herself a cup of coffee. She sat in front of a window at her kitchen table and stared at the pink vinyl siding of the house next door. This is craziness, she told herself. What am I doing? I don't own the man. I'm not even sure I want him. He wants his space. I want my space. There is nothing to be learned from going over there in the middle of the night. I can't change him. I can barely control myself. But she woke again Thursday night with the same panic, dread, sadness, despair, and anger she'd been waking with for weeks. She drove to North Providence. Kitchen light was on, but there was no car. She drove slowly down the street two and three times. Then she circled the block once and then circled it again. There was no car. There were no open parking spaces in front of Babatudne's house, but there were plenty of open parking spaces on the street that ran parallel to Babatudne Street. His car was nowhere to be seen. She drove further up the street and circled the blocks on both sides of the street and parked behind Babatudne's block. She parked again in the space in front of the fire hydrant, and then she collapsed. You couldn't tell by looking at Sonia that anything was different, but inside her, everything was different, as if her soul was made of sugar or salt that had poured away through a funnel, spilling onto the ground until there was nothing left inside. Her breath got short. She sobbed once as she put her head in her hands, but she held on to the world nonetheless. I am stronger than this, she thought. I will not cry. And then she drove home. The old blue Saturn was parked in front of the house on Congress Street. Baba Tudne was asleep inside it, a book on his chest. He jumped when Sonia rapped on the window. 
He appeared confused, his eyes unfocused, as if he didn't know where he was, how he had gotten there, or even who Sonia herself was. He found his glasses, which were sitting on the top of his head, and put them on. Sonia didn't wait for him to roll down the window. She marched around the car and tugged on the handle of the passenger door, which was locked two or three times until Babatudne understood enough about where he was, who she was, and where they were to unlock the door, which she opened, and then she came inside the car. What are you doing here, Sonia said. It is five o'clock in the morning. I fell asleep, Babatudne said. That is apparent, Sonia said. You are sleeping in a car in front of my house on my street in my city. It is five o'clock in the morning. You did not answer my question. What, just what are you doing here? Why are you angry, Babatudne said. I just left your house. Your car was not parked in front of your house. You have other interests, it appears, Sonia said. I am parked in front of your house, Babatune said, on your street, in your city, not anywhere else. I saw you across the street from my house in my city every night, parked in front of the fire hydrant when I got up to write, and then you didn't come last night. So I came here to see for myself, to surprise you and perhaps to talk, but then I fell asleep. You refuse to come to my house, Sonia said. You have ideas about gentrification and the dispossessed. Those are just ideas, Babatune said, and not particularly good ones after all. So I came here tonight to surprise you. Sonia paused, and suddenly she could see and feel something she hadn't seen or felt before. These were not particularly beautiful words or particularly beautiful ideas, but once again, her skin was tingling. Would you like to come in for coffee, she said. It's almost time for breakfast. What thrills Sonia most today? is not who lives where. What thrills Sonia most today is knowing she has someone close who listens. Sometimes she writes papers for class and Babatune edits those papers. He doesn't give her ideas. He helps her say what she believes instead of hiding it behind words. And sometimes Sonia slips into one of Babatune's classes toward the end of the class period. She doesn't come to protect her investment by walking out with Babatudne arm in arm. She comes only to hear what he has to say and to listen to the beauty of his ideas, which are just a little less beautiful than his rich and imaginative soul. Babatudne comes with Sonia on Saturdays in the spring. She coaches soccer. He sits in the stands and reads, or sometimes talks to the parents of other players about immigration, gentrification, justice, and democracy. But most other times he keeps his ideas to himself and is pleased how much he is learning about unconditional love. The world now seems full of life and hope despite its many difficulties. The end. So a little different perspective on the world perhaps. I love in that story how um, the unexpected appearance of Babatundi in front of Sonia's house just turns everything around. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I love them both as people. You know, I I feel like I I know them both as people, and I love that they're complex and you know, and their lives aren't simple, but they find a way to connect anyway, um, which is most spectacular. This has been wonderful. It was wonderful to hear you read that story. I've read it um, on the page, but to hear you read it brought a, a, a whole new sense of, of vitality to it. So thank you very much for that. Thank you all for being here. And 
Thanks again to Zach and to the library for doing this and for everything else you do, which is so important to all of us. I encourage you to get your hands on Dr. Fine's books. You can purchase titles on his website, drfinemd.com. There are also copies available through the public library, but there is a waiting list for them, so that tells you something about the popularity of the book. Links to Dr. Fine's website and the library catalog can be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Rhodey Radio. Please rate and review Rhodey Radio wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd be honored if you would share it with a friend. Rhodey Radio is proud to be a resident partner of the Rhode Island Center for the Book and is brought to you by library staff and community members all around the Ocean State. When you're listening to Rhodey Radio, you know you're listening to something good. Mm-hmm.